Welcome to the Energy Fellows podcast, where each episode is designed to share expertise and experiences from U.S. and global energy fellows. They provide direction and possible solutions for ultimate journey results. Here's your host, Mark Stansberry. Enabling best-in-class customer experience and operational excellence in a hyper-connected oil and gas world, TCS prioritizes problem-solving and leverages customer insights to drive real business results. To find out more, go to TCS.com. That's TCS.com. Welcome to the Energy Fellows Podcast. I'm Mark Stansbury, and today we have a guest that I had the opportunity to hear in Houston not too long ago at Greentown Labs presentation, along with sponsorship by Halliburton Labs. She did an outstanding presentation, and her name is Caitlin Smith from Austin, Texas, and with Jupiter Power. Welcome, Caitlin. Thanks for having me. Well, we're excited about this. I really wanted to hear again. Uh, I would love to hear your presentation again. It was a really great job. And I know the audience would like to hear that, you know, because I'd like to hear more about Jupiter Power and what an impact your company has made and is going to make in the future. But first of all, we start off with a journey, and that is your journey, your journey of life. And tell us about yourself and where it all began and up, you know, the early days all the way to now, if you will. And please take your time on that. We love to hear about it. You know, I do a lot of talking and I'm very extroverted and I think I pride myself on networking, but I have found when you and I had dinner together, Mark, I've found that sometimes I have a hard time talking about myself. You know, it's easier to kind of talk about my company and promote it and all the great things we're doing that you talked about. So I will try to take as long as I can. I was born in Bakersfield, California, and I won't go through my entire life, but why I bring that up is that is kind of a known oil and gas town. You know, I was at lunch with somebody that turned out to be a great friend and industry colleague, and he said, you know, what the heck were you doing in Bakersfield? And my dad was working for Tenneco at the time. So my dad and then his dad before him were working in oil and gas. My dad is an attorney. He spent his entire career as an attorney for oil and gas companies. And he got very involved in environmental regulations from that side of the business, kind of all the environmental standards and regulations and the things that were changing very rapidly at the time that you need that need to go into oil and gas drilling. And so he kind of encouraged me to get in on the environmental side of things. Mm -hmm. And I've always kind of had a focus on clean energy and clean power. And that comes from that encouragement from my dad. So I think I've made the joke before we did kind of an original energy transitions job thing there. I was raised mostly in Texas with my parents outside of Houston I went to the University of Texas undergrad, and then I left the state for a while. I went to law school in Pennsylvania. I did even more school. I did kind of a master's of environmental and natural resource policy and worked myself briefly in natural gas. And then I came back to Texas about 10 years ago. And for those last 10 years, I have been focused really on the power generation, the electricity side and on the kind of wholesale market design. So my first job in the industry was for what's called the independent market monitor to ERCOT. Mm -hmm. And ERCOT is this grid operator in Texas, and that's how we 
buy and sell wholesale power before you flip the switch and turn the light on. And so I was working for this consultant that's kind of an independent body that contracts with the state government and with ERCOT, and they do market monitoring. So they are looking out for manipulation, but they are also focused on market design. So they were something that was put in place after Enron to make sure, you know, we have a functioning power market. And so I got a really good education in wholesale market design there. Since then, I've really focused on Texas and sort of the regulatory market design and what goes into that. And I've worked with, you know, various clean energy interests. I was consulting when winter storm Yuri hit and I had that background. And then I was in kind of a place where I wasn't representing just one company. So I had an opportunity myself to a lot of media interviews And it was really good education experience for myself. And I hope that I helped educate some consumers because, you know, the power market is really complicated. And obviously everybody experienced it in a hard and traumatic way during URI. And so trying to explain to people what was happening and why, I think is really important to me to get that information out there. Then I just kind of added that communications experience to my professional resume And so now I cover that government and regulatory affairs that I learned, as well as communications and as well as kind of ESG strategy and reporting at the company I think you mentioned. It's called Jupiter Power. Right, right. Well, you know, at the dinner, which was with energy leaders in Houston, I was touched by the fact that the workforce development is in question in a sense, because we need the, not only in the oil and gas sector, but in your sector and other sectors in the energy fields, need a workforce in place. And what do you see, I want to talk about Jupiter here in just a second, but as far as a workforce, what challenges do you see and how do we meet those challenges and where we are today? As far as the workforce for energy or clean energy? Clean energy and energy, because, you know, there's kind of a disconnect. I've been giving different talks, and I see the disconnect among different sectors. And anytime someone labels it energy, it seems, that doesn't have to be just oil and gas. It can also be in the clean energy sector as well that are looking for help and assistance. Do you see that that much or not? You know, I get outreach from a lot of very young people who very purposefully want to get into clean energy. And I was always more in tune with that. I once got asked what job I wouldn't do. And I think, you know, I love my coal plant would be pretty difficult. But other than that, you know, I think the clean energy jobs that are there are there because of the economy and the economics of these projects are making sense. So when I get questions like that, I don't think you have to go too far to find a clean energy job. I think usually that is what's going to be available. I find that to be pretty exciting. We have a lot of young people at at Jupiter Power, and we have some of them came over from oil and gas, and I think it is easier to make that transition when you are young. But we have a really great workforce exemplified in our company, and some of them have come from oil and gas. Some of them have a more traditional renewable energy background. Some maybe have a finance background or a technology background. And I think that is how we've kind of put together our workforce at Jupiter. Tell us about Jupiter that leads us right to Jupiter Power. And so please tell us about that. Yes, we are a developer and then we keep the projects we own and operate. 
And what we are developing and then owning and operate are utility scale standalone energy storage projects. And so I usually say that our premise is that these projects are standalone, meaning they are not co-located with one dedicated generation source or one dedicated customer. So what you might think of is a solar plus storage. We're, we're primarily not doing that. Or you might think of on a small scale, a battery attached to your house or your grocery store. We're not doing that. We're doing a very large battery that is grid scale. And to date, the technology has been lithium ion. And so I usually say that is the premise because we do have this incredible company of young people and great minds who are always looking at new technology and new things that we can develop. But to date, it has been these grid scale battery projects. And we have a large fleet of them in in Texas. I think we have the largest fleet of any single developer. We have 655 megawatt hours. Mm-hmm. In storage, you do it in megawatt hours because you have the kind of megawatts in the ground, you have footprint, but then depending on the technology, on the duration, you can actually put out a longer or more capacity per hour. So we have the 650 megawatt hours, and then we have a development pipeline across the country. We have projects coming online soon in California and then Virginia, and then we have a, a very large pipeline of about 11 gigs And that's more in Texas and more in those other places I mentioned, but also a heavy focus on the Northeast. And a couple of those projects are in late stage development. So we have even more kind of steel going in the ground. We have some amount of, I think, 300 megawatts in construction currently. And so we are really getting the steel in the ground already. Jupiter was founded in 2017. And our founders in C-Suite are people who have extensive renewable development experience. And then we got private equity investment in 2019. And we have really just been able to carry out our vision since then. Are you looking at internationally as well? I believe so, but I can't give you anything concrete there. Right. And I always like to talk about our success that individuals had like yourself and how you measure success. And that means from my standpoint, I'm big on dashboards and metrics and measurements and things like that from calendars, you name it, to measure off how successful I've been or not been. And so what are some measurements of success that you can share with the audience of how you look at life and your career and opportunities? So for the company, I think the megawatts and, you know, the partners we've made and where we're developing, I think you're asking about me, but I'll give the company answer. Yeah, that'd be great. I think the kind of things I just told you are a good way to measure success, right? When I met you, I was there to talk about a large project, 200 megawatts in Houston. And so something like that, you know, we are really deep in the permitting there. We're almost done with that. We expect to be in construction early next year and have that finished at the end of next year. So knowing, you know, we have this big suite of batteries already on the ground in Texas. We have an urban project, and I think it'll be not just the first project in Houston, but the first project in any city of that size. And so I think those are really good ways for the company to measure success. I do all that first because for myself, I'm not great at measuring success like that with certain events and numbers. You know, I did actually study math in college, and I think I am a pretty good logical math person. 
but I don't have that much of a commercial role, right? I don't have anything where I am doing modeling or I can directly attribute, you know, trading revenue to myself. And that works for me. I think that would be hard for some other people. You know, I look at resumes of people in those roles and they say those things, right? You know, like multiply the revenue by 200%. I have really kind of a communications and almost like lobbying role. So it's really hard to do that. I think I measure success by do I feel like I'm continuing to learn? I think that sounds kind of earnest, but. I really want to always be learning more in my career. Is there a new subject? Is there a new aspect to that subject? You know, maybe I should be learning more about like how to make revenue. And so if I'm learning more and then, you know, my career's depended heavily on networking. So things like you asking me to do this podcast, getting invited to speak at certain events, things like that, I think are an okay way for me to measure success. And then my personal style of kind of lobbying and doing government and regulatory affairs is coalition building. I think there's a time and a place to be aggressive and say, we need this law or we're not going to do X project. But I have found that what works for me is getting to some kind of consensus with regulators and other stakeholders. So, you know, I recently did an effort that I won't get into, but it was something that I thought a bunch of stakeholders would be kind of on the same side as me. And so I got about 28 other parties to sign on to my comments. So things like that are kind of how I measure success, right? I put together this coalition, we did this effort, and here's maybe what we saw happen in return. I think from a lobbying point of view, that's kind of how I measure success. As far as keeping up with information, it's got to be challenging just to uh, be at the forefront of everything because you're very involved in networking and meeting and keeping up with activities. How do you keep up with, especially on the reading, and what references would you provide others to go to if they're interested in pursuing what you do? I would say I probably don't keep up. I get a lot of information. I think Over-communicating to me is what I have found works well, and I just will kind of sign up for anything. I think you have to have a little bit of a discerning eye, so this might be hard to give advice to somebody young in their career, right? You need to be knowing if somebody, not you, Mark, invites us to a podcast, but it doesn't have a great reputation, or really just trying to sell X, or this conference is really a for-profit thing. I think you need to be discerning on where your information is coming from and who's motivated by what and providing it to people. But, you know, the trade associations we're members of, the utility dives, the different outlets that get you headlines about our industry. And then I get all the kind of different ISOs. So the ERCOT and then the ERCOT equivalent in New York and California, I get their news sent directly to me. I just kind of get everything sent to me. And then, you know, filter through it to somebody who doesn't have that filter. I don't think this is novel advice, but I think asking is always a good way to go, right? Somebody like me or somebody who's been in that career longer than me or shorter than me saying, I saw this. Is this a real thing? Is it actually happening? Where could I find out more about it? I think that kind of thing is always helpful, too. Yes, I do too. And I'm glad you mentioned that because that goes along with mentors. To this day, I still will call a mentor 
That doesn't mean older, it could be younger <laughs> mentors along the way that can help me through things because I have some in the different professions, whether it's legal or accounting or whatever, and I just need some help along the way. And I call them and they're there. Do you have mentors, either in name or at least those that you can uh, reference to that you've had along the way that got you to this point, but also that you count on as your advisors and that you can always call on? Yeah, I'm pretty open with a lot of people. As I said, I've been focused on the Texas market pretty heavily, and we're very proud of kind of the stakeholder world we've built up in Texas and ERCOT. We do these meetings on the ERCOT rules all the time, constantly, right? They're on a monthly cycle, and you have different committees and subcommittees about different topics. And so, especially pre-COVID, these were, you know, the same 40 people you're seeing in a room pretty often. And so I had a good sense of who might be an expertise in this topic, or maybe if it was personal, right? If I had a job interview at a bank, somebody in that kind of banking and trading segment, maybe I could call. You know, I have been lucky to end my career. I have almost always had a pretty good relationship with my direct supervisor or boss. So a lot of those former direct supervisors or bosses, I still call on, you know, Beth Garza is a woman who led the independent market monitor for ERCOT for a while. And she was my first boss in the industry. And she's a very, you know, strong and outspoken woman. And I think she's a really good mentor to me. There's a woman named Kim Casey, who leads the Gulf Coast Power Association. She leads a trade association, and she's had a long career as well and worked in oil and gas. And so I get some mentorship that way. The person I mentioned in the anecdote about my dad, who said, what the heck were you doing in Bakersfield? He actually worked with my dad at that time. And his name is Robert G. He went on to be a public utility commissioner in Texas and then worked at DOE. And he is kind of a champion for Asian Americans in the industry. My mom is Asian American, so that has been helpful. So I didn't ask any of these people's permission if I could say that they were my mentor. So hopefully they're all okay with it. I've got a feeling they'll like that, by the way. An important thing that I hope that I am good at is I think I'm pretty good at knowing what I don't know. I think that is pretty invaluable in a career, right? I think if you don't know the answer, it's probably better for you to say, I don't know, than to take like a real shot in the dark at it. You know, a lot of times you might think you know the answer. And I think that there's room for when you're pretty sure to just go ahead with it. But I think knowing where you don't know and knowing where to ask for help. I really liked what you said about, you know, sometimes they're younger or less experienced than you because I try not to let that stop me. I think a person with a couple years of experience in development still has more years of experience in development than I do, right? Because I've never been in the developer role or a junior trader still has more trading experience than I do. So I'm hoping to learn from them. It's hard when you get older though. I'm almost 40 and Jupiter is a great company and we have a lot of really young people, but it's like you kind of look in the mirror one day and people expect you to be the leader and the mentor and have this wisdom. And sometimes I feel like, well, I just kind of want to sit and still learn from everybody else. So it's balance, I think. That's great advice. When you don't know, you definitely look out for the answers instead of uh, trying to bluff your way through. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that happen too often and it costs the company, it costs a lot of profits from being made sometimes as well. ESG, environmental social governance, is that something that's part of your oversight? Is that correct? And tell us about that as well, as far as uh, how it fits into the energy sector. 
It is part of my oversight. And, you know, I go back and forth on highlighting it for myself, right? Because it has become this very political thing. But before we were calling it ESG, we were calling it sustainability. And there's always been kind of since we've had federally regulated investors and investments, right? We've had certain requirements on investment about disclosure and reporting, and then that leads to strategy. From the Jupiter perspective, when we're talking about ESG, our batteries are providing power to the grid. And when we're actually providing that generation, we're zero emissions, right? We have to charge at some point. And I would say there's an emissions value there because the overall grid still has an emissions value. But when we are just generating that power, we are zero added emissions. And then the other thing batteries do, or they really enable more renewable generation on the grid. So when you have wind and solar, there's still kind of a limit to how much you want. And a lot of times there's a limit to how you can get that to consumers because it's intermittent and variable, right? It's not always the sun is shining and not always the wind is blowing. And a lot of times the wind is blowing in a different time and place than where the people are. And so by having that battery, right, you can kind of soak up that renewable generation and then discharge it as power when people need it. It's zero emissions generation in itself. And then it is something that kind of enables the whole grid to go more renewable, to go to an overall grid percentage of less emissions. And so we were doing that, right? That's how we make money. But we wanted to kind of talk about what we are doing emissions-wise and how we are helping clean energy. And so that is where my role came in. I think some people are starting from one way, right? They're saying we need to be doing ESG, so we'll hire someone and, you know, I don't want to say makeup, but we will look at areas where we can do that. And I think with Jupiter, they said, oh, we are doing this as our core business function as how we make money. How do we kind of fit that into a strategy and reporting and messaging? And that's where I came into that. Mentioned it the first, or I'd mentioned it the first in the introduction about your presentation in Houston and thought it was a great presentation. Can you provide a kind of a summary of what you presented? Because I think it's definitely worthwhile to know about what you said and in some of that you've already mentioned, but if you will elaborate a little bit more. Oh boy, I don't have the presentation in front of me. So, you know, I know I went through the company. So Jupiter Power again, founded in 2017 by founders and C-suite who have renewable energy experience. And, you know, one of the things I say is they've really been doing storage as long as you can do it, right? I think we read something, I'm going to misquote it, but I believe it was Bloomberg and they were talking about how this is kind of the zero decade of storage. Well, we have people who've already been working on storage for maybe a decade. So we were in those sort of negative years. My boss has been doing storage as long as it's existed in Texas. She worked on a pilot program called No Trees in Texas. And so she's been working on this type of project as long as it's existed. We have focused on standalone utility scale storage, and we've been able to put that 650 megawatt hours of steel on the ground with the additional 300 megawatts in construction. I know I was there to talk about our Houston project, which is really exciting, as I said, And so I guess I could talk a little bit about that. When we are talking about a battery project, and that was a good segue from you, the thing that it can do is help 
pair nicely with renewables because you might be in a situation where you have a lot of renewable energy. Like in West Texas, we have a lot of wind and it's blowing in West Texas and there's some transmission constraints to get it to people who are not living in West Texas and it might be blowing at, you know, 3 a.m. And so with the battery, what we would do is in Texas, the kind of price indicates where we are with supply and demand. So we might be at very low prices because we have a lot of wind energy and not a lot of people who need it. And it's West Texas and it's three in the morning. So we would buy energy to charge our battery at that time. And then we would discharge that energy and provide power to the grid when people do need it. So maybe the sunset ramp. So when the sun sets and all that solar generation is going away, but it's still hot outside in a lot of Texas in the summer. And so people need it. And so that's kind of the theory of why these these projects are in West Texas, because that's where you see a constraint in that way. You see more wind and it can't get to the people who need it. The theory about locating in Houston at a very high level is kind of the same, right? You have a need that doesn't match the generation that can get to it. You know, after URI, I think a lot of people have become kind of experts and they look at the ERCOT heat map and they see that it's bright red and there's really high prices in Houston. And so if we put a battery there, we're just more generation at those red times. And so we should help those customers in the area with lower wholesale prices. And doing something like constructing a battery is faster and cheaper than building the Houston import project. Again, I think I said, you know, building the Houston import project every 10 years because Houston is always growing. We always need more power there. So that's what we are excited about with that project in Houston. And, you know, when I think about it, I think a city is the perfect place for something like a battery because it does help with that congestion, with that need for more power and no way to get it there via transmission. And storage is a lot less land intensive than solar. I think it's about a tenth as land intensive. And it's not like wind, right? You don't need the wind to be blowing a certain way or the sun to be shining a certain way. And so it's a lot easier to put it in a dense urban spot. And then, like I said, it's that zero emissions or zero added emissions when we are generating. So I think it's a really good place like Houston that has a focus on sustainability and resiliency. That's a great summary. Appreciate that, Caitlin. Uh, <laughs> Did I cover? <laughs> without note, you covered it really well. I'm, you know, it's kind of when I was at that meeting, too, I didn't realize how big it was going to be. You know, I do my spiel all the time. I cover communications, and I got all that great experience from doing media after URI. I just kind of breezed in there and did it, and I got really positive feedback. But oh, it was great. I wonder what that says about me as a person. I can see, like, a room of 100 people and just zero fear, <laughs> zero preparation, just go public speak. You know, I think it's a positive in some ways, but I wonder what it says about me. It was a very well-received presentation, and the dialogue we had as well was really appreciated. Caitlin Smith with Jupiter Power, Austin, Texas. And thank you, Caitlin, for being with us today on our show, The Energy Fellows Podcast. Listeners, please, we'd love to hear from you. Please leave a review. We definitely hope you'll tune in to upcoming episodes. And we say on this, Caitlin, that the future of energy depends on us, depends on all of us. So again, thank you, Caitlin, for being on. I agree with that. And thank you for having me. Again, the Energy Fellows, I'm Mark Stansbury, host. Join us again next week on the Energy Fellows podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.